0: O I'm Miriam Makamo. Tonight, we get to listen to and learn from four exceptional, adventurous women. Ladies and gentlemen, Coyota Tipene, Selena Tusitala Marsh, Annabel Langbein, and Miriam Lancewood. So, before we get to the stories of these Amazing wahine, let's just take a moment to consider something truly awesome, uh, that we are here. (laughs) That we are here together, sitting next to each other, close together, in this theater, to hear some inspiring, outrageous, and wildly wonderful stories in each other's presence. As parts of the world begin to lock down, how lucky are we? Let's take this moment. (laughs) Uh, Adventures aren't meant to just be fun, rollicking rides. They are meant to take us into new and sometimes scary spaces. They beat us down and build us up, they teach us. Uh, Adventures challenge us to do something unheard of. It's why we waka across oceans, swim channels, run marathons, split atoms, stand up against institutions, and hold arts festivals during a pandemic (laughs) (laughs) in Christchurch. (laughs) Talk about adventurous and pioneering spirit. Speaking of which, let's go to our first speaker this evening. I think it's pretty fair to say that her entire life is to be an adventurer. She is literally the whole job description. In this increasingly apocalyptic existence we're entertaining, Miriam is really with guns, knives, a backpack, (laughs) and a knack for selling best Selling books or writing best selling books about it. Now, when we tuck into bed at night, Miriam is hunkering down with Peter in the back blocks of nowhere with a thin canvas between her and the world. She lives in the wild. Now, this might sound a little fringe, but if it goes all wrong, I want to be with the woman who can wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be with the woman that can wrestle a boar to the ground with one hand, shoot and skin a (laughs) rabbit with the other one, and still look like that. (laughs) She wanted me to say that she's from Holland because she said people will say, where is that strange accent from? (laughs) Because, of course, our Kiwi accent is so normal. Tonight we get to hear about this extraordinary woman's life. She has set a new global bar for adventuring. Please <coughs> welcome Miriam Lancewood.
1: So, my name is Miriam Lancewood, and I've lived for seven years with my husband in the wilderness of New Zealand. So We sleep in a tent, we always cook on a fire, we um, move around like nomads all over the country, and we, um, I learned how to hunt with a bow and arrow, and later with a rifle. So in my book, you can read how we adjusted to living in the mountains, how we um, had to slow down to meet the rhythm of nature. We lived the way our ancestors lived, so we had to touch again those uh, dormant senses, So my senses improved a lot, my sense of smell and a sense of intuition, and all that. So you can read how we crossed mountains, how we get through rivers, and how we endured the weather. So after seven years, we left New Zealand and we went to France, and we walked 2,000 kilometers through Europe, Bulgaria, and Turkey. And every night, we find the tallest tree, and the branches of the tree is our roof and the moss on the ground is our carpet. And the stream nearby is our drinking water, and we wash our clothes, and we wash ourselves in the river. We feel we live a nomadic life and a very free life, but we don't have security. We don't have a regular income. We don't have um, a group of friends and family that we see regularly. Um, We cannot accumulate possessions. And so it's quite a different life that way. But we feel we live a life of adventure. None of us want to live a mediocre life, right? None of us want to die of boredom and live Groundhog Day, do we? None of us want to be called a sheeple, right? (laughs) So (laughs) what stops us from having an adventure? First of all, age. And when you're over 50, you think, well, now I should settle down and, you know, find some security or whatever. Now, Peter, my husband, he's 30 years older than I am, and he started long walking the T. Araroa Trail when he was 62 years old. So it's all in your mind. You have to have the courage and the mentality to live an adventure. So, what stops us from having an adventure? Fear. And over the years, I've been looking at fear, what is fear? And I've discovered the most strangest things about fear. Because when you're actually in a very dangerous situation, I feel no fear because I have to deal with all what is in front of me, right? I organized an epic female expedition. And um, in the end, a long story, but in the end, I went with one other female and we crossed eight mountain ranges and we kept underneath the glaciers all the time. So we had to cross all those glacier rivers. Um, It took us two and a half months, and the only thing we had was two rifles. So we got very hungry and we ate a lot of meat. (laughs) But we survived. But very often, um, we had to cross, you know, very precarious situations and we could fall off and we had to sort of walk on the edge. So when you're actually in the situation, there doesn't seem to be that much fear. So, back to my question, what stops us from having an adventure? It is also timing. I think timing is really important. Like when you one second too late on the highway, you might have an accident, right? It's all about timing. But the last thing that is very important for an adventure is the courage. And sometimes your courage gets tested to the max. What happened to us is that we traveled to Australia, uh, so now two years ago, and Peter fell sick with a stomach bug, and then he got dehydrated. It was in a desert in the Northern Territories. And then he started to faint and he had a fever. Luckily, we were close to the hospital, so I brought him to the hospital. Then, this is very bad news, he was very quickly diagnosed with acute kidney failure. The doctor even spoke about total organ failure. You know, this is really um, very, very serious. It was very uh, traumatic to go through that with the um, emergency situation. He was five weeks in the hospital. In the end, the doctor said, well, you can go home now. <laughs> Didn't have a home. <laughs> yeah, this is very uncomfortable, of course. <laughs> and uh, we, went to New Zeal- we came back to New Zealand, and luckily we stayed with some friends. And then, for the first time in nine years, we had to live in the house. And then, six months later, the specialist said to Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, you now have chronic kidney failure. And this is pretty deadly. He said, You can, I will recommend you to do dialysis and kidney transplant. Um, If you don't, the chance on survival is only 3%. And we looked at all the options, we looked at all the um, um, consequences, all the side effects of dialysis and transplant. And Peter said, No, I'd rather die than live on a machine. And so we we were in that house, and um, we um, enjoyed every day because it could be his last day and so time seemed to slow down completely, and everything became very intense, and with that intensity, there was a lot of love and Then, six months later, he started to recover and so it was this is a miracle and I think he recovered because, you know, a lot of people are afraid to die, myself included. But this takes up a lot of energy. And maybe, in Peter's case, because he did not seem to be afraid to die, maybe he used that very energy to recover. Who knows? But let this be a source of inspiration for all of us. Maybe one day we also have to say, I'd rather die than live a life in what feels like a prison. Maybe we can do this. And let this be a spark, a spark of something bright. And so a spark to light your inner fire. And don't ever forget, look after your inner fire. Thank you so much.
0: So one of the things that I talk about a lot to uh, women, I give talks on this and, and, uh, and I always hope that there are men there as well because I think it's really important. Um, I talk about this thing that I call the four M's and they're the M's that we don't want to talk about but I think that we need to talk about and they are menstruation, miscarriage, motherhood and menopause. I reckon we need to talk about them, celebrate them even, and include our kids and me in a discussion around, uh, around them. So it was with the, with the greatest of gratitude that I read an article from our next speaker, Annabelle Langbein, who spoke to life after 50. She said, I always thought menopause was going to be the end of the earth, but it is so not. It's the opposite. You have this incredible energy, and you can still feel sexy and fabulous, but there is this freedom that comes with it. Yes, sister,
2: (laughs) yes, thank you
0: very much. (laughs) Annabelle Annabelle is an example of Miriam uh, saying that, you know, life does not finish at 50. Uh, And frankly, if there is a woman that is qualified to speak to the adventuring of womanhood, it is Annabelle Langbein. Uh, Three television series, 27 books, a businesswoman, mother and wife and the creator of the cake that features in nearly every single family event (laughs) in my house, literally called the best ever banana cake, I am thrilled to present to you Annabelle Langbein.
2: I think lots of you know me from the TV series and the you know, like probably quite tidy person who turns up and you really don't know too much about the backstory of my life. I left home when I was 16, much to my um, parents' horror, and uh, I moved up the wanganui River with my lovely boyfriend who was extremely idealistic and we became Maoist hippies. <laughs> and he was very fervently sharp-horned to the left and I just adored him so I was following. And we cooked over a fire. We didn't have any electricity. um, We lived, hunted, shot, fished. And I remember coming back one weekend. I was still at at school, actually, when the first weekend I went up to Ranana. And I came home, and I was covered in imbatago saws, maybe 30 of them on my face. And if my mother could have put me in the boot of the car... (laughs) She would have, and we went straight to the doctor. Anyway, that didn't put me off. I stayed up the river, and then, along with six other people, actually seven other people, we built this 52-foot catamaran. And um, the other people that were on the boat were my boyfriend's um, sister, two sisters, and their two partners, and two other friends, and a cat and a baby. And we left um, Wellington on the night of a storm warning, um, and we came round Cape Palliser and I remember I was not on the first watch and I hadn't latched the um, you know, the portholes properly and this huge shuddering wave hit the side of the boat and so I started getting all my possessions together because we'd, we were packed to go off around the world and we were going to stop in Gisborne to go possum trapping on the way, <laughs> as you do. So that was the beginning of 10 days of sheer horror. And I wanted, you know, I went from sort of wanting to die, to thinking I was dead, to wishing I was dead. <laughs> and when I got off that boat, um, I didn't actually want to see any of those intellectual people ever again in my life, <laughs> even my very nice boyfriend. So when this incredibly good-looking, louche guy came down the wharf in a black cable jersey and some fishing boots and lanky blonde hair and blue eyes and said that we looked like we might have needed a shower and put us all in his Thames Trader um, van and took us to his house which had once been a um, a milking shed and he had painted the most vile green and bilious purple and had a velvet picture on the wall. that wasn't a picture, it was one of those Tahitian maidens. (laughs) (laughs) I moved in four days later. (laughs) (laughs) So this new boyfriend of mine um, was 10 years older than me and there were quite a few, um, not particularly attributes, I would call, that he had. Um, but it was a very short amount of time. I was living in the bush. Um, I had a 185cc motorbike. I was hunting, shooting, fishing. And I just loved the freedom. I just loved the freedom of this life. It was fantastic. And um, like Miriam, we lived actually, and we just lived off the land. I used to take a sack of rice and we'd hunt deer I never ate possums. I bought my first house when I was 20 from the money I made possum trapping and doing live deer recovery. I was the jumper, Um, and as a result of that, I now need a new knee and a new hip. (laughs) (laughs) But um, the thing about this guy was he was a real adventurer, but he was also a big drinker. (laughs) (laughs) And we used to come to town now and then, and he'd always come to town when it was duck shooting time. And um, so we'd, we'd be in town, and we, I got really good at shooting skeet. And so we'd go to the gun club on a Sunday, and we hadn't been dating for very long at this point. I'd had my first trip into the bush, and um, we'd come out, and we were, we were off to the gun club. Anyway, there'd been a lot of drinking going on on this particular afternoon. And I was driving him home, and he sort of just grabbed the steering wheel, you know, like this, stop. And he got out of the car, and he threw up, and his teeth came out. LAUGHTER <laughs> And, you know, like, I didn't even know anyone with bulls teeth at that stage of life. And I tell you what, he did not look quite so good without those curly whites. but as they say, love is blind. So we we lived in the bush, and then we we came home, and I used to make crayfish pots. And actually, it was quite, for me, quite a lonely life, in a way, because I'm naturally quite a sociable, gregarious person, and I didn't know anyone else. I'd left all those people that I'd been on the boat with. I'd jacked up with this guy. I stayed with him for two and a half years. And in this time, this is when I really turned to cooking, and I discovered Julia Child, and I'd make these lobster pots, and I'd go and put them out, and I'd get my crayfish, and I'd go to Julia, and it was like, here's how you make the lobster thermidor. And if any of you have made that recipe out of Julia's mastering the out-of-French cookery, it's in about nine-point font, and it goes on for about five pages, and there's about (laughs) 1,000 calories in it. But I was there with her, and she was a very reassuring and comforting presence in my life. And um, I guess at that stage of my life, I really didn't have any fear, and it's interesting, because one of the things that does happen when you have children is suddenly you get fearful. It's a bizarre thing. I don't know if you other women have felt this, but it was sort of not annoying, but it's instinctual, I think, because your, your role is to be there and to protect people and to make sure that everybody... Um, comes out alive, actually, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the man who I ended up marrying, there's a lovely story about this, and there's a whole um, uh, chapter devoted to the man who I married because it's been a long, ongoing love affair since I was 18 and with lots of interludes, I might say. We didn't get married until I was about 28. <laughs> um, but uh, the first time he took me shooting, it was really funny. He didn't know I was a good shot because I hadn't really told him about this stage of my life, <laughs> and he said, "I'll go first." <laughs> and he went boff boff, and I and nothing happened. And I went boff boff and landed two ducks. <laughs> Hasn't taken me shooting since. Um, but the fantastic story, because my favourite word in the English language is serendipity. And I do think in life, um, so many of the things that you said, Miriam, are are just so true about um, sort of finding time and place and and the right time in life. But when I met um, Ted, he never actually saw me. I'd split up from the man with no teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, took quite a while. (laughs) Um, But I was still possum trapping, and I, I was living up in the bush sometimes, and other times I was managing a vineyard down in Gisborne. And... I was working this bit of river that looked like a really nice, easy bit of river, so I had my traps. Most days I'd do maybe 25 kilometres, and, you know, I was so fit then. Um, Anyway, I heard a horse coming, and I thought, hmm, perhaps I'm not supposed to be here. So I climbed up this prairie tree, and this guy stopped right underneath my tree, and my heart was just going so loud like this. I thought he would have heard it. That's how like, fast and hard my heart was going. And he just stayed under the tree and he was going, oh, bloody possum trappers. <laughs> After a while, I peeked down and he was so good looking, I nearly fell out of the tree. <laughs> but I dislocated badly. <laughs> and it wasn't gonna be like water for chocolate, where they ride off on the White Horse into the Blue Horizon. I knew it was going to end badly, so he never saw me. And after about half an hour, he left, and then I waited another hour, and I got down out of that tree, I picked up the few traps I had left, and I never went trapping again. And the next Friday, I thought, I need to get back into civilization again. you know. So I basically got a frock, put some lipstick on, and went to the pub. And every small town in New Zealand used to have a pub where the, all the cockies would go, all the farmers would go. So I turned up at the Masonic Hotel in Gisborne, and I started asking people, you know, did anyone know anyone who had a flat? And um, these two girls' names kept coming up, and they were cousins, and they had a flat in Hospital Road. So I was really nervous going for my flat interview. You know, I'd been, I'd been living outside of society for a really long time. And I turned up, and they straight away just said, move in, come now, stay tonight. It was on my, t- my motorbike, and I had the Thames Trader van that I'd got from the ex-boyfriend who'd gone bankrupt, and I'd had to do the whole, you know, as you do. Anyway, so all these maps all these maps on the wall of this flat of farms, and I thought, well, I know all that territory, but that's my old life. I'm not going to say anything about that, and one of the girls was about six foot three, and the other one was maybe five foot, and they were just so funny. You'd wake up in the morning and think all your ribs were broken because you'd laugh so much. And one day in the weekend, this incredibly tall, skinny guy turned up, and he was there to see his sister, who was the tall one. And I thought, I know you, but you don't know me. (laughs) And he was the guy that had been under my tree, and he is the guy that I married. So... So there's lots more stories. I could take you on lots of adventures. I feel incredibly lucky to um, have had the life I've had. And the thing about life is it isn't all peaches and cream. There'll be hard balls that come so hard and fast and hit you that you just don't know where they've come from, and you don't know if you'll survive them. And my mother taught me this thing that you just literally have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep going, and then you'll find yourself in another place. And this is what life is. So, enjoy every minute of it, because it can be a hell of a roller coaster of a ride. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Kaiora Tsipine is a guide. She has helped normalize the normal in this country and beyond. As a funeral director, Kaiora makes what is unbearable, as bearable as she can for grieving Farno and friends. And in her inimitable and courageous way, she has made real and accessible what too many of us don't want to know about through her wildly popular Netflix show, The Casketeers. Now, any time I have ever encountered Coyota, it's in an extraordinary capacity. The last time was when she was speaking about miscarriage, and of course that's one of my four M's, and she was trying to help normalise what is too often not spoken of. Kaiora is an adventurer, a mum of five boys, six, she says, if you include her husband. (laughs) She is a navigator of the human heart. No mai, etemare kūra, please welcome Kaiora Tsipene.
3: My name is Koyora Tipine, and I was raised in the far north. And it all started two hours southwest of Kaitaia, in a valley called Puapua. Pua. I come from a family of 12, six girls and six boys, and trust me, it was quite normal back in them days to be in the double digits of those north. <laughs> in order to get to this valley, you needed either a quad bike, a horse, or just walk to get there and you had to pretty much go and fetch your own water if you wanted a warm bath. You had to heat it up on the fire. But our home out in Puapua later became our holiday home. And so when we want to uh, revitalize, I guess, ourselves, rejuvenate, we go back there, where we find a bit of comfort and reminisce on those um, humble beginnings. Moving forward, I moved to Auckland, met my lovely darling, he's a bit of a character by the way, <laughs> and have five children. We met at, a, at a, a teacher's training college at a place called Te Wananga Takiura, where it's total immersion Reo Māori. We didn't quite see that through because we had a baby. Moved to Kaitaia where we were educators. He was an educator for a place known as Te Oranga, and I was teaching at a kohanga. I was quite comfortable at the time. I was, I was raising my son there. He was learning te reo Māori and you know, learning a bit of tikanga up home. And then one day my husband comes back and he says, oh, I think it's time we start our own business. Oh, all right, cool. And I'm hanging up the clothes and going, oh, he's going through this man thing, no problem. (laughs) He goes, oh. I said, what's your business? He goes, oh, I want to own a funeral home. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm struggling to put the pig in the line now. (laughs) 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 Oh, okay, right. And how do you propose we do this? Well, I've already got a job in Auckland. In Auckland. Oh, Okay. So, and he, and he said, guess what? I've even got your job." Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so he was quite serious. He didn't get me a job at the funeral home, no, but I managed to um, teach at a Kura school known as Piripono in Ōtara. Two weeks later, we moved to Auckland. He then um, had some experience in the funeral industry. Uh, he was with that funeral home for about three months, and then he moved on to another funeral home in Pamua. What I found when he was there is that it became really consuming, where he was the the only employee at the time. His boss fell sick, and he then needed to operate this funeral home on his own. And of course I wasn't seeing my husband, and it was probably a week before I saw him because this job required you to be there all the time. You couldn't just say no to families. You couldn't turn them down because you can hear their tangi, you can hear their pony, They need help, they need you straight away. And he doesn't have that ability to say no to people, especially in that grief. So he then needed my help. He said, babe, are you ready to join me in this? I need some awhi. And of course, I was like, oh. without hesitation, I went to assist him. We had two boys at the time, and that required them to come to mahi with us, my two-year-old and an eight-month-old at the time. So I couldn't, I had no funds to put my boys in daycare. I didn't find that the assistance from the government at the time was enough to put them in daycare, so they had to come to mahi with us. And it was good, you know, they were exposed to learning about the funeral industry, Uh, funeral processes Um, (laughs) was a different education for them (laughs) at first of course I was um, sort of taken back by what I seen thinking you know he's already been in this line of work for a few months now he's used to it and me coming in for the first time he's like oh babe I just need you to go and get Mr so-and-so over there could you just transfer her over here and I'm like where is she Okay, so I'm looking around, you know, walking around, and then I see this lovely bed and it had the sheet on, and I said, is that her there? And he goes, oh, don't be rude. Yes, go on, go talk to her and bring her over here with us. And I'm, okay, all right. But I had to quickly get over that, because he needed help. He needed someone to assist him through this. So i managed to overcome that fear when you saw the whanau for the first time and they see their loved one in their resting bed. And they turn around and they say to you, oh my gosh, my mum looks so amazing, thank you so much. It was then I realised, actually, thank you for allowing me to care for your loved one. Became a blessing. It then became something that I love, and I really love it. So I have to acknowledge my husband for that. Now, what became really adventurous in my life was actually agreeing to being filmed. (laughs) And, look, the idea came from her name is Annabelle Lee Harris. She's a producer for the Hui now, and she was working for Māori television at the time. And she says, hey girl, what about we follow you and your mahi and we film you doing this? I was like, eh? Hey?
0: <laughs>
3: really? And she goes, yeah, it'll be catch I was like, who are you following though? Me or them or what? She goes, everything. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, no problem. And at first I thought, oh, oh, oh I should be fine it should be okay, it's TV, wow, let's do this. Then I went to go home and told my husband, I said, guess what, <laughs> Annabelle's come back with this idea, do you like it? No, it was a straight no from him, I was going, oh, okay. So I left it and I thought, oh, is maybe a couple of days' time. <laughs> hey hun, well, you know that idea I told you about? Yes, it's a still no. Oh, but what about if we changed it like so that they, they just follow you and I? Well, his view in respecting our loved ones, his view in respecting their whanau and their grief, what changed our minds what was seeing how uh, social media has become really powerful in getting tangi out there and the amount of our own whanau sharing photos and even being seen on the news where you watch caskets being taken out of their buddy, or even onto the marae. So that's what changed us. It was like, okay, if they can show it that way, maybe we can educate our people this other way. And I have to acknowledge our, our film crew, because before it went on air, oh, Wow. We see these ads, you see, you know. The first ad that comes on and he says a line like this, you know, let's not confuse with how much I love my wife to how much I, you know, don't like working with her. (laughs) And I... My mouth was just like, really? You know, I had nothing but nice things to say about you." (laughs) So when they film us, they take us to this room, and it's kind of like therapy, you know? (laughs) They ask you these questions and you let it out. (laughs) So after seeing the first season, I said to them, oh, I'm not holding back now. So I have to really acknowledge the producer and the director with how they articulated our series, because trying to portray something like that and ensuring that it's going to be appealing to our people, to Aotearoa and to the world, they've done it in such a respectful way that I can't mihi to them enough.
0: Now, adventuring is really putting into action the words, I dare to. Selina Tusitala Marsh dares to be a poet, a writer, a proud Pacifica woman, a mother, a runner, a mophead, an adventurer of the written word. She is our fast-talking, best-selling, glittering Pacifica Poet Laureate. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Selina to La Marche.
4: <laughs> Kia ora koutou, my lawless oi four. Can I borrow that for the blurb of the next book? Because that's, <laughs> that's stunning. Thank you. And you know, the, the, the joy of being the final speaker and mopping up everyone else's <laughs> thoughts is that I get to acknowledge each of you, but I actually only have 15 minutes, so I'm just going to do it kind of sideways Z. So Miriam talked about living in the wild with her husband, Peter, for seven years. I have lived in the wild with my husband for 25 years, and we haven't even left the house. And Miriamma spoke about the four Ms, and Annabelle's mentioned menopause, and I too have entered that because it is men on pause. (laughs) My three sons, my husband, I FaceTimed him tonight, he was like, "Uh, are you gonna cover up? And I'm like, Absolutely, I got gold glitter all over me. <laughs> Men on pause. Yeah. Um, adventure definition: an unusual, daring, exciting experience. Adventure definition: engaging in a daring, risking, risky activity. So I could have told you about the time I took the New Zealand poet laureate toko toko, or carved Māori walking stick, up the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and got sprung by security who were going to arrest me, except my fellow writers who were with me at the Dubai Literary Festival then told him that I was the guest of the Crown Prince, who was the sponsor of the Dubai Literary Festival and had us all shunted out into the private elevator and exiting the Burj Khalifa. So it was either that or jail, and we made the Writers' Festival. I could have told you about that. (laughs) I could have told you about the time I stood with the toko toko in the wings before the photo, the official photo with Barack Obama and I had a blue-suited security guard see me from across the hall and suddenly see the um, potential weapon I was holding (laughs) and speak into his Bluetooth speaker phone and then three other guys came out and they started walking towards me, but not before the photographer cued me to go on and I'm running up there (laughs) and saying, hi, Barry. It's (laughs) It's Sal. <laughs> I know who you are. We need the arts. We need poetry especially. Thanks, Barry. <laughs> I didn't call him Barry. I called him Obama. I could have told you about that experience. I could have told you how I snuck my way in with the Sky Tower maintenance crew for their last cleanup before these big antennae went to the very top of the lightning rod and we managed to abseil up the lightning rod, except um, my girlfriend got her ropes tangled, maintenance crew had to go down and I was stuck up there for 29 minutes when the wind picked up. And that lightning rod, like you know when you're down there, it, it looks perfectly still. It's not. <laughs> that was an adventure. I could have told you about my very first ever marathon that my, um, the leader of Waiheke Trail Tribe, Sarah Gloria, decided would be the Queenstown Shot Over Moonlight Marathon, which qualifies as an ultra because it is 2,500 meters elevated throughout the whole course. But I said yes because I was running to get to the end of myself because I had a big decision to make. And what I found out over that 42 kilometers of mountain range was that I'm a a lot stronger than I thought I was and I didn't break. And that was the lesson that running was and is my moving meditation and there's no time There's no certificate at the end, no one even knows you finish, I don't think you do finish, but what I found out was, yeah, I'm a hella stronger than I thought I was, and laughter and humour of one of my superpowers. What I want to share with you tonight is a really quiet adventure, a really still moment where I had to be daring, and I took a big risk, and it turned out to be, well, it's when I went and had a meeting with Sam Alworthy, who is head of Auckland University Press, and it was the end of my two-year tenure as New Zealand poet laureate, and I'd written a 60,000 memoir a poetic meditation on each of those 11 pieces that comprises my toko toko. And I was so pleased and so uh, proud to do this, my first kind of writing in this area, and I did a lot of poetry and a lot of academic writing, and Sam loved it, and then I stood up to leave his office and I crossed through the doorway, and I was suddenly hit by this roomy poem, the roomy palm that has anchored me for the last two years. And it goes out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field, I'll meet you there, where the soul lies down in the long grass and the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase, each other, makes no sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Do not go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Do not go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds meet. The door is round and open. Do not go back to sleep. And I was about to leave Sam's office and I turned around and I said, hey, there's this really crazy, wacky, silly thing I've been doing, but do you want to see it? And he's like, "Um, yeah, sure. (laughs) And I was like, well, it's just really rough, but um, there's a character that I've used to tell the story of the New Zealand Poet Laureateship because I think the average New Zealander needs to know that we've got this phenomenal award, and kids need to know it so they can aspire to it. And um, I started telling the laureate story for kids, and out came the story about having too big hair and being teased and labelled a mop head. And, um, And that was the name that I was bullied with at primary school, and it was one of those names that haunted me through primary school, intermediate, and even college. And so Sam was like, well, sit down. And I showed him the complete storyboard of mop really rough drawings. And he kind of grabbed his heart and he was like, uh, I think this is kind of capturing the zeitgeist of our nation at the moment. Look at all these powerful women in Aotearoa doing... Powerful things in their own bespoke way. So let's set aside the written memoir, and let's give Mop here to go. And I just, you know, I just, that was an adventure, that was my big risk, right? I've always drawn, I've always doodled, I would never deign to call myself an artist, and yet last week Mophead picked up Book Design of the Year at the Publishers Association of New Zealand and I don't know if you heard about it, but I was so shocked and surprised and I was having wine at the back that I bunny hopped all the way to the stage and people watched me and my hair, like, so, and I heard someone go, she's an author. <laughs> I'm like, I'm an illustrator too. <laughs> <laughs> so she's completely taken me by storm, um, and she continues to tell my truth. She's a memoir. Her sister's coming out in a few weeks' time, Mophead Two, um, spelt T-U. Whereas Mophead was about how how your difference makes a difference. Mophead 2 is all about how we you stand matters. And it's how she both kept and broke the rules that the Queen issued for her poem that I delivered um, as Commonwealth Poet. So we've all got access to those inner adventures, right? We've all got access to the dawn breeze. And what's been very difficult for me as mother, as wife, as sister-in-law is to actually ask for what I really want. And mophead Head was what I really wanted and um, I get to share her with you. So the door is round and open and the dawn breezes have secrets to tell you. Do not go back to sleep. thank you.
0: I feel a little bit (laughs) emotional now. Thank you, Selena. (laughs) Do not go back to sleep. I love this. Um, What an absolute privilege and pleasure and honor it has been to run this evening and to be able to present each of you women to this um, receptive and gorgeous audience. Thank you, uh, the four of you, and thank you to everyone for being here. Let's just go over quickly what we've heard tonight. Um, We heard about adventuring and what that is, that the recipe lies in rejecting age and fear and embracing timing and courage. We heard less about cooking from Annabelle Langbein and more about hunting and shooting and fishing and boat building, the joys of hippie love and false teeth. (laughs) And then true love. We heard about defying the fear of death, saying yes to life's challenges, and the wisdom of wills, and how to handle ornery husbands. (laughs) And we heard how to reimagine menopause, men on pause. How to claim and reclaim who we are, and that when you forget your makeup, as Selena did this evening, you can just put on glitter, and it's all good. (laughs) We've all got access to the dawn breeze, she says, so let's be courageous to ask for what we really need and not go back to sleep. Selena spoke of lightning rods, and that is what these women are, lightning rods for change, for daring do, for living on the edge, for just simply living. That's what these women embody. So thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause, please, for our women.